journalism in the broadest sense is, you know, being the first account recorders of what will be history. So today, this is Rudy Sallow. Thank you for joining Goodness in the Details, being honored in doing the introductions of our guest, Liz Farmer. And I'll give a little bit of background on how I've gotten to know her. First, before I do that, I'm now saying my Twitter handle at the beginning of the show. It's at Sallow Rudy. Gwen, do you want to give your handle as well? I'm at G Dolsky. So the person that we're having talked today, Liz Farmer and I, met via this amazing platform where you get to network and it's so important these days to to be a part of it and that's linkedin i've started following her on linkedin i started studying her articles when she was working for governing.com and she was a journalist probably one of the best journalists the most entertaining journalist in what i do for my boring day job which is public finance so Liz knows public finance, the ins and outs of it, and she can even write about it in an entertaining, educational way. And we became friends through LinkedIn, shared some thoughts and some ideas. I've always thought very highly of her, and I'm super excited that she's decided to join the show today. And so Liz, what we'd love to hear about is obviously today we're going to talk primarily on uh, who you are and the working from home movement. But why don't you give it a little bit about your background as a journalist and what makes you an expert from working from home? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll, I'll try to keep it short. I came into journalism by going to grad school. I had originally majored in something in undergrad that is now, my major is now defunct. It does not exist anymore at my college. It was called electronic media back when the interwebs was a new and exciting way to communicate and all wait, of that. And so- wait, Was this like uh, typewriters and stuff? Like, what, what, are we, what, are we, what are we talking about here? Like, oh, I mean, I mean, electronic, electronic <laughs> media is still around. So I'm, I'm very curious about this defunct nature of this. So it's not defunct in the sense that it was basically film, television, and radio production all rolled into one major, and they introduced the exciting element of like digital. So for example, for my radio production class, we started off literally splicing tape and learning about how to do that to our final project, which was on a mini disc, which back when they were supposed to be like the next new big thing. So these these the old maybe these... give you sense of like... These aren't the old like DATs, the digital audio tapes, are they? I'm not trying to date you. No, I, by the uh... way, I'm not allowed to talk about age <laughs> on the show. Uh, Gwen's not, even though yesterday was my birthday and I turned a certain age, I'm not allowed to talk about that. So no worries if well, you don't okay, want to date Well, it's okay because we established that you are older than me. So Rudy always says that when we're the same age. Like Rudy True. will date himself and then throw me under the bus. He'll be like, you know, you know, Gwen. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I didn't get a happy <laughs> yeah. birthday from her. I got a, you're older than me now. So, so sorry, Liz, didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Anyone can go onto my LinkedIn page and see when I graduated college. But um, at any rate, no, it was like those little mini discs. I'm, I'm holding up my fingers, you know, so that really helps your audio listeners. But those like mini, mini CD discs, not the regular CDs, which are also basically defunct now, but the little teeny tiny ones. Those were supposed to be like really going to be the really hot thing back in 02 when it was. I remember those. I remember those. Those were those were really hot. I was spinning them at the at the clubs back yeah. then. Yes. No. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So, needless to say, uh, I worked uh, for a little while in television production, and then did some like early twenties soul searching, traveling stuff, and then went to, to journalism school, and have been a journalist ever since. And so, I, I started off covering business in Baltimore, and uh, got into covering mostly the business of sports, which was super fun. Which is why. 
any chance I got at governing to write about city and financing, I would. So, and which may be why you found my article so interesting. <laughs> I'm noticing like an aha moment right now. <laughs> because uh, in, my, yeah. in the very first part of my career, my primary focus was on stadium finance. So I became, I was a part of this team uh-huh. at my, at my current law firm. We did the deal. We did the new England Patriots stadium. We did the new Yankee stadium. We did the New York Mets stadium. We did the Minnesota twins. We did the Barclays. It was a string of years where stadium finance was like hot, 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 even through, yes. it, through and into the financial crisis. And I, and I was a part of that, that team until they kind of disbanded and went to another law firm. So yeah, I knew, I knew there were reasons why we, uh, why we're kindred spirits and, and it's my stadium <laughs> finance background. Yeah. And so, so thank can you I for throw, providing can... me with all of that. All that good stuff, all that sexy, <laughs> yeah. se- the sexiest part of public finance is stadium finance. Okay. So now I have to ask the philosophy question. What is journalism? <laughs> I'm not answering that. I mean, I'm just a Forbes. I'm just a Forbes. Do, I'm just a Forbes.com contributor. So Liz is the expert. What is the definition of journalism? <laughs> I mean, it it really. <laughs> yeah, you know, no. it, it depends. Look at me. <laughs> stumps. That's know. what Gwen does. Gwen Gwen stumps. <laughs> Professor I Gwen. Know. Well, well so I mean. It, there's so much like, okay, there has to be some definition of it because then I want to know what is the difference between good and bad journalism. So I would think mm. that good journalism is able to achieve whatever the aim of journalism is and then bad is an attempt at that, but yeah. maybe goes in the other way, like misinforms. Yes. I'm not even sure bad journalism is a, you know, just a failed attempt. It's a deliberate attempt to do something else. But journalism in the broadest sense is, you know, being the first account recorders of what will be history. And so that encompasses everything from, you know, beat reporters who are like a just the facts ma'am, Joe Friday kind of approach to journalism where they, you know, they take in content and they process it and they spit it back out in the readable format. And then there are opinion writers who, take that and then kind of form an opinion and an argument and a thesis and use that to purport their opinions. And there are very, very talented opinion writers. There are opinion writers who I think do the world of journalism and, you know, a, a disgrace and everything in, in between. And so, and then of course, there's many different kinds. There's investigative journalism. There's all those different kinds of things, but in its truest form that we are the first recorders of history. That is okay. seriously profound. The first recorders of history. As I a like history, that definition. <laughs> as, a hist- as a history junkie, I mean, I thought you were awesome before, but now you have like this golden aura around you, Liz. So I appreciate it. How <laughs> did- my shirt. How did, no, your shirt's awesome. Uh, how did you, as, as, as your, as your journalist, journalism career move forward and I know you're over there in the mid-Atlantic how did you get involved with the work from home movement pre-COVID-19 was that a function of your job and the direction that journalism was already going i.e. you don't need a big real estate in order to be a journalism how did that work so it was basically me just wanting to work from home I wanted work-life balance and I saw absolutely no reason why my job, which was primarily writing and talking to people, sometimes in person, sometimes on the phone, why I couldn't do that at home. And it wasn't as conducive in my previous jobs, which were daily journalism jobs, where it's really imperative that I have a you know connection, face-to-face interaction with my editor every day. But at governing, I mean, it's not a daily daily journalism gig. I don't have to be running out and chasing ambulances and all that stuff. I'm sitting in my, you know, somewhat lofty ivory-ish tower, <laughs> maybe off-white tower, 
analyzing stuff that has already happened and doing that like second and third day story. And so when I started at governing, I just flat out asked, I said, I would really like to be able to work from home. And I was pregnant at the time. And, and honestly, I used the excuse of like, I want to be close to my kid in daycare when I get back from work. <laughs> but seriously, it was just because I wanted to work from home and I saw no reason why I shouldn't be able to. And so my boss agreed and that was how old is my son he's almost seven so that was you know almost seven years ago and um i kind of bumped up the days from there i worked i think i started at two days from home then i bumped it up at three and then we moved out into farmland and i worked almost entirely from home at that point we're, we're going to talk about the farm we're going to talk about the, the the food movement but so what you're saying is that you're a revolutionary is what you're saying because <laughs> because seven years <laughs> Seven years pre-COVID is like a is like a whole generation. I mean, Lord only knows what happened seven years ago. How much resistance did you have? What was it like back then? How hard was it to do the work from home thing like pre-COVID nineteen? I mean, it's great that you pulled it off, but how hard was mm -hmm. it? It okay. So I mean, there, there's two kinds of hard. There's like getting the permission hard, and then there's the actually making it work. Hard. For me, honestly, like I, and this is, has nothing to do with my boss at the time, but it was just the accumulation of previous bosses who had never really trusted that I was actually working unless they could see me working in, you know, in the newsroom or wherever. And so I just assumed that this new boss I had would be the same way. And so I didn't, I honestly, I didn't feel I could just come out and ask, hey, I'd like to work from home, you know, work-life balance, blah, blah, blah. You know, those are the real reasons. But instead, I kind of timed it around my return to work after being pregnant and which seemed like a more, you know, legitimate, like real life kind of thing rather than I just want to. So I think these days people still have to kind of finagle it a little bit like that. They can't just say, I want to. But I think what COVID is showing us is that maybe now we can just say, I want to because it's better for everybody. I wonder if women have actually, so, so as you can tell, one of the things that you put in the article on um, work from home was that it was a quote from Scott Nelson about it's creating more warmth and intimacy. And I keep thinking about that every time yeah. my daughter, you know, coos or whatnot. I'm like, you know what? This is just life now. This is what it's like to work from home. But I'm wondering if, yeah. uh, if women haven't kind of led the way with this because there are moms and the classic idea of the nine to five job in an office women have shown through their pregnancy or through having babies that they don't have to work in that locked time set or even in a location. Are women leading this or have they, do you yeah. think? And women are revolutionary. Okay, look, I'm, I'm a man and I'm, you know, I'm very <laughs> proud to say that, yes, it was, it was incumbent upon you guys to start building that trust. In, yeah, the assumption in the, in the, in the, was- In the bosses. Yeah, right? the, but people can work all of, this also has to do with technology, I'm wondering with this new movement, like some of the benefits, it seems like maybe somebody with a disability, for instance, that this has opened up a window for possibilities for what does it mean to work and to be productive. There's this other side of it that I realized I am now on my computer all the time because I'm on my computer for Zoom for this. I'm now on my computer for teaching. I'm on my computer for exercising for through Zoom classes. I'm on my computer to be social. So I am now glued, my butt is glued to my desk in this spot, hours. What do you think about that phenomenon? Yeah. 
No, go ahead, Liz. I'm curious. I mean, you, you having done it for seven years, you probably had yeah. to have dealt with the fact that the computer is now your new appendage. I mean, your appendage there is not a young, newer appendage, but was it a part of you? I mean, do you have to set the boundaries at home and, and like, nope, during this, during these hours, I'm not looking at the computer. I'm not looking at my phone. How did that work pre-COVID? Because post-COVID, I mean, all bets are off in my opinion, but what have you been able to do yeah. in order to have, you know, home computer balance? Yeah. So I've always, you know, for better or worse, been good at compartmentalizing and just focusing literally on what is in front of me. So that has advantages and disadvantages. And so, you know, when I work, I sit down and I work. And when I'm not working, I just put my computer away and I tend not to go back to it. Now, being able to check email on my phone and stuff kind of ruins that a little bit. But um, I also don't, have a job where I have to be glued to any kind of device unless something really, you know, vital is happening, but that's not the regular part of my job. If I were a daily journalist, that my, I think my life, it would be a lot different. I would feel like I would have to keep checking my email compulsively all the time. But the way I was able to organize it is I was basically in control of a lot of my schedule. I just tried to cluster my calls into like one section of the day. I knew that when I was on a day I was writing, I always have the most energy in the mornings. And so I try and structure that. And then I go out and do some gardening while I waited for my editor to read it. And so I didn't have that problem most of the time before COVID. And these days, I, I mean, this is the beginning of, of, I think, a four-hour stretch of me being in front of my computer, and I'm just like, oh, God, it's just going to suck all the life out of me. I mean, that's so different than it used to be a couple months ago. Pre-COVID, was this movement, this work-from-home movement that you were a, you know, a Bolshevik-level, like, you know, revolutionary starter of? You're like a Lenin, if you will, of uh, <laughs> I like of it. You keep upgrading it. <laughs> I do. Yes, I'm, I'm keep raising the pedestal. Um, Rudy's great at PR. Do you need a promotion or anything, Rudy? Yeah. She knows. No, Liz knows that. Believe me, I've got I've got her back, and I promote as much as I can. But was it a real movement? Did it have like? Did you guys have you know pamphlets that you handed out? Did you have a website? Did you have a philosophy? <laughs> was it was it all about cutting down carbon emissions? Like, or was it just kind of? But tell me a little bit more about the quote unquote the movement. I don't know if I would call it a movement. I will say that I was the first person to work from home in my office. And then slowly but surely, more and more people started to do it. And, you know, I remember my boss coming to me at some point and just saying, like, you started this whole thing. And he had been skeptical at first that it would really work, but it worked so well with me that someone else wanted to do it and so on and so on. And by the time, right before governing had governing folded, we had two employees who were entirely remote. One was in St. Louis, the other was in New York City. I was in the office only one day a week, if that. And most of our other coworkers were kind of in and out. And so um, there, and I will say that I have heard more and more instances like that. I just, I know a lot of people now who work from home. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. So I don't know if it's a movement, but it's kind of like a slow simmer. But I think now we're going to see a movement. Did governing bring up the fact, did they thank you at all for the fact that you brought down real estate costs for those two employees? Because the reality is in order to house somebody inside of an office or to provide them a place to work, it costs money. I mean, and you were probably saving some kind of seat costs. I would hope that that was either passed along to you or recognized in some way. But I do think that that real estate cost aspect of it is what everybody's going to be focusing now on. Because if we, if this trust is built and we are as productive, perhaps we're not as healthy mentally or work-life balance-wise, we're not as healthy, but if we're as productive, we are bringing down costs for these organizations. And I'm just, was that discussed at all with you? 
I'm wondering, I was wondering the same thing about real estate. I'm wondering if it always does bring yeah. down the cost. Cause I was thinking about if I'm not on campus, for instance, I'm a professor. So I'm at home teaching, then that means I'm not on campus buying the coffee there. I'm not, I'm not eating there. So I was thinking about things like that. Yeah. So well, I have a follow-up for you, Gwen, but I have to be careful what I say here, but our parent company never ended up downsizing our office. So we ended up having a lot of empty real estate right in the heart of Washington, DC, literally like empty desks and empty offices that we weren't using. There was talk about going to like a WeWork kind of situation or something like that. And in which case we definitely would have saved some money. We just never got to that point before the magazine folded. But I also wonder, so like, yes, theoretically, when you have a hoteling desk kind of thing, you do save money on real estate, but it doesn't all the way go down to zero, Gwen, because like, I imagine you, do you have an office on campus that you use when you are yes. there? Yes. Oh, so, oh, yeah. And, and do you share that with anybody else? I do. That's another show. <laughs> Shared office spaces. <laughs> oh, Gwen, that's the future. That is another show. No, no, no. That, we can, we don't even yeah. open up that door because we have only a limited amount of time, but that is the, that's another episode for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is but I oh god when i was pregnant like putting jokes. up my cankles on the desk like that was <laughs> you got to stop bragging about the cankles you know i'm very sensitive about my skinny legs it's like you gotta shut stop the door and i'd forget up. that i was like oh, okay this is a shared space maybe i shouldn't just like put my feet up with my cankles and all their glory okay Liz, i'm sorry Liz, Liz, I don't know if how many shows you've listened to of, of Gwen and I, but there's this ongoing joke of my sensitivity of my chicken legs. And so she would frequently make fun of me by showing her legs when she was pregnant. And I didn't show my jealous. legs, excuse you. I'm just, I'm, I, you know what I mean. Okay, we're, 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 we're going down a, a ridiculous road. Um, costs. Did they ever talk to you about the cost-saving measures with you? No, but I don't think that they, that wouldn't have been appropriate anyway, considering my role and my job and all that. If we were a, you know, an employee owned kind of place or something like that, where, where there were bonuses or whatever, then yeah, maybe that would be appropriate, but not necessarily for, for where I worked. But I do think that that is, that could be a huge motivator for everybody involved because you, you do save money and it's good for the environment and all that other stuff that you can pull in to justify the reason why you want to do it. I think... Wait, Rudy, yeah. what, is the, what is the environment angle? Well, here's the environment angle, right? Okay. And Liz pointed this out in the emails that we sent to each other preparing this. She was saying, well, yeah, people are probably saying that they, they're probably saying now that they wanted to cut down on carbon <laughs> emissions from cars or damage to the roads, um, infrastructure from you know people having to commute. It's very clear that during COVID-19, global emissions, carbon emissions have been down 17% in only two months. That's incredible. If the work from home movement wants to glom onto something uh, to say, this is why this should not just be acceptable, this should be a almost forced part of our future, this will take care of those carbon emission goals that these governments have said. This will take care of the Paris Accord. We need to have more people working from home and to stop commuting. That's the green, clean earth angle from it. Is that, is that right, Liz? Yeah, and, and or for companies who have carbon reduction goals as well, or who just want to please shareholders or anyone with, you know, who's into green bond and in, bond investing or any of that stuff. I mean, you can, 
you can, there is math that you can do to show what you could be saving in terms of emissions. It's a Guam on Gwen of my, of my pre COVID-19 anti-car stance. Remember when I was all public oh, yeah. transportation and walking and now I'm all about gas public guzzlers and, and, and staying alone in a single vehicle car and, you know, don't have anybody around me. This is the post COVID-19 Rudy that we're talking about here. That's what that movement <laughs> was about. I yeah, mean, no, can sorry, I even Gwen, call but... you the transit whisperer anymore? Oh, I still whisper to transit and I say, <laughs> and I say, clean yourself or, or consider new, new, new modes of transportation, which may be singular pods <laughs> that transport yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm in touch with a whole bunch of companies that were, were thinking futuristically of more single or double occupant pods rather than sharing big trains. And there's a number of companies out there that I think that I still advocate and will advocate for are the future of transportation. I just don't know, you know, I don't know if people are ever going to get comfortable getting onto a packed train ever again. I just don't know. In one of your articles about broadband expansion that I thought was interesting that can be taken for granted is a presupposition that internet access is available. And I'm wondering if we're going to start looking at internet almost the way we look at water or we look at air, that it's a necessity or what do you, could you expand on that? Do we lose her? We did. You know how perfect your timing was on asking this, Gwen? <laughs> one, one of the reasons why Liz is also an advocate and a junkie, if you will, of the expansion of broadband internet out into the rural areas is because sometimes her internet goes out. One of the big problems of the work from home movement is we people in the cities uh, out here in Los Angeles and elsewhere assume that great broadband internet is everywhere. It's not. There's a huge problem in rural and even suburban communities like where Liz lives right now that they don't have excellent internet service. A lot of local governments are focusing on financing, but there's no solutions. One of the major impediments to the work from home movement, a true work from home movement, more in the rural and suburbs, is the lack of broadband internet connectivity, which that timing was perfect for that question, Liz. Please tell us about the problems with that. Well, currently you guys are too frozen. Okay. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yes, I just had to, I had to halt my video because I kept getting the notice that my con internet connection is unstable. And I think my six-year-old son is playing video games online. I shouted down to him to stop. Um, but he's <laughs> like, no, it's not going to decide what I do. So the timing was perfect. On Wednesdays, he is It was perfect timing. It was, yeah, almost, it was, so it was yeah, almost as if we planned just... this. But no, tell, tell us, tell us a little yeah. bit about the rural broadband problems. Well, first of all, when we moved here and I tried to figure out what internet service we got and, that, and, and I couldn't find it. And, um, you know, the thought of doing satellite internet just seems very, very, very strange. And so satellite internet technically is broadband capable because it meets the absolute bare minimum upload and download speed that the FCC set as the standard, which is super slow faster than dial-up while connections get disrupted. And the trick with satellite too is that we pay, I don't mind saying this, nobody knows our satellite provider, we pay $150 a month for 
the like mega 50 gigabytes data package. And, and I think we could pay 200 if we wanted, you know, 60 gigabytes a month. What that, that means, it's almost like old fashioned cell phone plans. Like you have your data limit, <laughs> old fashioned as of like, you know, six years ago, you have your data limit. And then once you reach that limit, your speed gets bumped down. So usually about mid month or three weeks in, when we've got about a week or more to go before it refreshes, we get bumped down to non-broadband speed. And so right now, technically, I'm, we're still on broadband speed because we just refreshed for the month and we still are getting like interrupted signals and all that stuff. And so, so it's just, it's super, super frustrating. So that, that'll always be one of the impediments, Gwen. And this is something that I was talking about last night with my wife about post-COVID, pre-COVID, what does the future look like? 1918 Spanish flu, they had a lot of the government, a lot of the shutdowns, the shelter in place. It's the last time in history where I think that uh, this is the only time that we can kind of look to and, and take some lessons from. After three years of that running rampant and, and freaking 50 million or 200 million or however many millions of people throughout the earth died at that particular time, you know, people went back to the cities because that's where the jobs were, right? They, everyone went back to the cities because that's where the offices were. That's where the manufacturing was. The major difference, I mean, there's a lot of differences between now and 1918, but I think the major difference between now and 1918 is the internet. And because we have the internet, we don't need to return back to those cities. We don't need to return back to those factories. We don't need to return, I mean, most factories, I mean, a lot of them can be done robotically, but the major difference between now and then is the internet and what we're able to do from home. There's no way we'd be able to record this podcast from home. There's no way we'd be able to work from home. The issue is not every American, not every citizen, not everyone throughout the earth has access to you know, reliable, capable, high-speed internet. And that will be one of the impediments, I believe, in a strong work from home movement. I think it'll also start, it'll be a class issue though, too, because who can and can't get the internet and who can and can't work from home, then who's the most vulnerable when they're going out for work? You know, where working can mean that you get infected or you get sick. My daughter has a lot to say. Wait, I'll let you guys talk about that and I'm going to go ahead and mute myself while she continues to share her thoughts and feelings. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. If somebody can afford to, if somebody yeah. can pay that satellite or somebody has the ability to, to pay that, yeah. that amount, they can work from home. If they can't afford it, they're going to be going into the cities and they will be exposing themselves. I do think it does become a class issue as well. Liz, you noted in your Rockefeller article, which is one of the ones that you've quoted me and thank you very much always for, for having me be a talking head because the Lord knows I love to talk. You noted that the current surge in the work from home movement is not a true representation of what it's really like to work from home because we're under duress and there are additional distractions. These distractions are kids, you know, perfect. I mean, you know, Gwen's got her daughter. I got my kids upstairs. I've got my... Uh, my Boston Terrier always snoring underneath me. Do you think that those, in addition to the broadband issue, do you think that distractions could be a negative impact on the work from home movement because more and more people are going to be like, I can't do it. I can't work from home. I can't juggle. Uh, even if my kids are going back to school, I had such a horrible experience juggling all these things. Send me back to my office. Send me back to the city. I think it's going to change things like, let's say like workplace harassment or... I mean, there's going to be, I don't know. I, I think there's going to be so many things like what you, what you wear at the workplace. Like, it's hard to know. This is such a radical shift to know how big 
the repercussions are going to be. But then there's also something very healthy about interacting with people face to face. You know, I noticed this when I went to Starbucks or I had to stop by Starbucks. This is pre-COVID. I had to stop by Starbucks. I think I was going to go get my hair done. Thought I had enough time to run into Starbucks and get something. I go in, no one's in line. The place is empty. I'm good. And then I go to the side and it is taking forever for me to get my order. And I'm wondering what is going on. And it is because I look behind the counter and they have all the online orders that they're taking care of first. So I'm waiting there. So other people just dash into Starbucks, grab their drink and bail. They never have to interact with another person. I chose to interact with a human being to make my order. And now I'm 20 minutes behind for my hair appointment. Sorry, April. Um, so that's how, how I started to wonder what's happening is that we are cutting out human interaction more and more. And this is creating it even more. I think there's a real age difference in who's having a, a, you know, a carefree, awesome experience right now working from home or as carefree as it can be. That's a good And point. then who's really struggling. And I think it, and think it's, um, you know, if you're in your thirties, if you're of childbearing years and, and I'm not talking about if your child is in college, although I do have some friends who have kids home from college and that, that's a thing, right? But it's a very different thing if your kid is in elementary school, middle school, a young child. Um, there's just a lot more parent involvement. There's so much more juggling right now. And I think that you are going to see this kind of rebound once we're allowed to go back into the office. People are going to want to go. But then they're there. <laughs> but I was just talking with someone today whose husband works in Boston. They are not letting anyone go back because even even when it's air quotes okay or not, just the office building has decided they don't want to have to deal with reducing the amount of employees in the building and then risking whoever's coming in on public transit and just there's so many touch points that people aren't, just aren't going to go back for the rest of the year. And so we're going to be forced into this. And I do wonder what that means, Glenn, for you know how we interact with people that we don't live with from now on. With something that I'm focused on, and I think others are focused on as well, is I think there's legislation right now in Congress to protect like all employers from lawsuits regarding exposure to COVID-19. You know, workers saying, "Well, you made me come back to work," or "or I felt forced to come back to work, and I and I caught COVID on train, and I'm going to sue you." So I do think there's this whole liability issue that does need to be addressed as a parent with two very little ones at home. I got a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a wife that's still working full-time. My, uh, my work from home experience is much different than others. I could see how some people want to go back to their routine where when they were commuting to work, that was their alone time. They would listen to podcasts like Good Is In The yeah. Details. They would listen to other types of podcasts that Rudy Sala was on and they would enjoy themselves and they would get educated <laughs> And they would love to hear my voice. And they're, and they're not hearing my voice enough because they're not in their car. And I do think there's, there's something therapeutic, if you will, about the commute that has been oh, I thought ingrained. I you say about in, your voice. About my voice. <laughs> and that has been ingrained in, 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 in American psyche that may be missing. It may not very well be that people want to go back to work, but they want some alone time. That's what I think is yes. home movement's going to need to implement <laughs> one way or another. And I'd love to use my voice if anybody would like to hire me to, to sue people. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, there is that element of alone time. When you, I used to do it on the public transportation. That was my alone time. One hour in, one hour out. I used to write. I used to work on stuff. And other people would drive. That's what's missing from this work from home movement that I think people will always yearn for 
should the work from home movement become permanent? I think the structure of the home is going to look different because people are probably going to create office space in their home specifically for this. Like you'll start to see the new designs for home. Like you go out to buy a house and they'll be like, here's the closet, here's the master bedroom, and here's the home office. That that'll be part of it. Because if you don't have a space for working, I for a while had my laptop downstairs on my dining room table and I had to move it because I realized I can't work in the same place where I eat or where I'm right by the kitchen or where there's a television. So I had to stick to my home office where my desk is where I am right now, that this is where all of the work happens. I, I don't know. I think that that's going to be one of the changes. Liz? Yeah, I think that is an excellent point. Um, you, Thank you. will you. see more of that in, in homes of the future or in home remodeling. <laughs> and, and it's also a good, just a good practice for working from home, like having your work-related stuff living in one spot. Even if you live in, in an efficiency in a New York apartment, you can still have you know your, your three square foot corner <laughs> where your laptop is and all of that, and just being able to have that separation. There was already a movement in California uh, to address the affordable housing crisis. It was called the accessory dwelling unit. And they, these were allowed over like the past two or three years. Didn't really totally start to take off completely because you got to go through the permitting. You had to, I mean, it was a little bit of a pain in the butt, but basically on your land, right? You can, you know, you can have a grandma unit above the garage or you can build a small little separate housing on your land. And I think the accessory dwelling unit and now under California laws of last year or the year before, you can, there's a junior a dwelling unit where it's a separate workspace that you can build it within your house and you know rent it out or use it for anything that's going to explode like the adu movement the jade the the accessory the junior accessory dwelling unit i think homes single family homes will probably rise in value because of the work from home movement and that's why there's not a lot of home sales you could see my good friend mark farley um, Gwen, our good friend who we went to high school with, uh, he released an article la um, today about April sales of homes in California, or at least where he lives in San Diego, are the lowest since the Great Depression. It's very interesting about it when you're talking about all the little tentacles and effects that COVID and the work from home movement are going to have, it's going to be very interesting to see how that is going to maybe even have a negative impact upon affordable housing once again, because people are like, no, I'm definitely not selling my home. Nope. Places like this, now that these places are becoming workplaces and, and I've got a lot of land and I can build these units on it. This is the future, baby. The cities are going to die, not the suburbs. The suburbs, the rise of the suburbs. This is something that I've been focused on in, in my Forbes.com articles. And I know, Liz, that's something that you're focused on as well. Do you think that the suburbs will become cool again as a result of COVID-19 and the work from home movement? <laughs> you know, maybe. I think it's funny because there was this movement, you know, to build around transit stops and to then encourage reverse commuting. So like to bring out these, you know, former in city, you know, in the Washington DC area, it was where I used to live in Montgomery County. I mean, they were just trying to woo all the federal and state agencies up to their corner of, of the, the region. And then you'd have these reverse commuters or you get residents in Montgomery County that didn't have a commute at all or a short one. And so now instead of moving the whole darn office building out to the suburbs, just work from home. It's so much faster and easier. So I do think that you're gonna, that that is a possibility. You have to have be still be a vibrant place to live. I think transit does play a role somehow if you wanna get into the city on the weekend, for example. You know, I, I'm not sure I haven't really thought that out. But yeah, I, I could see that. It's not going to revitalize any place that doesn't have 
anything going for her right now, though. I mean, you have to be somewhere to start. You know, so many people meet their future spouses or their friends through work. That's one of the things I'm thinking of, or romantic relationships. Oh, what's going to happen to dating? Like, what's happening to all the dating sites and everything like that? Like, you- when, when, are we, when are we talking to the relationship expert? Because I've got a whole slew of questions okay. of, <laughs> of what, what's, what's dating on Zoom like. Not that oh, I'm, yeah, I'm a married man. I'm just, oh, I'm fascinated by gosh. this subject. My wife and I know a lot of single men and women. And yeah, of course, I mean, of course we tried to match them up with a single man, a single woman, but that didn't really work out very well. And that's why they're still single. But what's that, what's that, what's matchmaking going to be like in the future? I mean, you're, you're, Gwen, your point is an excellent one. Okay. We'll save it for the, yes, the relationship yes. guru we will. we'll have on. We will. Well, I mean, but when you think about it, people spend most of their day at work and I'm just wondering what the repercussions of this are going to be. There's so many. So Something I've been wondering as well, Liz, maybe you can tell me, what do you think is going to be a marker of where we say, oh, this was before the virus and then this was after? Like in the same way when you can watch a television show and you can tell that it was before, let's say, September 11th or something like that, that there was some sort of a a shift in attitude or what people said. What do you think is going to be something that's just gone that'll date I mean, my husband and I were just talking about this and he came up with a really good one, which I can't remember anymore, but maybe it'll come to me uh, as you guys talk. But I will say like when it was what something that's been interesting to me is just watching how quickly the commercials have changed and what's become normal in terms of, you know, my own personal acceptance of this. Like the first time I went to a store and they had all those markers on the ground for the six feet apart and all that stuff. And, and, I, and this is before like they ordered everyone had to wear face masks. So only some people were wearing face masks. Just being out in public with other people wearing face masks was scary. And then fast forward, like as little as two weeks after that, I'm popping on my face mask before I go in the store. And just, it seems so normal now. And that in and of itself is scary that we have gotten so quickly adapted to just this very apart way of living. Rudy loves it. You know, as, as a as somebody who suffers for, suffers from uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, I feel. I mean, you got to understand, okay? Like this is some, this is something that I that I had to I had to tr- had to train myself in order to in order to kind of you know function as a normal person and not always wash my hands and not you know and being able to shake somebody's hands and and communicate and, and stand close to people. I, I had to do, do some training in order to do that. So now I've had to untrain myself to live in this new COVID world. And now everybody is like me. Everyone is crazy. And so I feel normal. Like it's strange. I, I feel yeah. there's, this, there's this release of I'm different. I'm no longer different. I could write a book You're about how more. to survive during COVID-19 and yeah. how not to touch anything and how to time your way when you're in a bathroom so you don't have to touch a door oh my and all, all kinds of stuff. I can do, I can teach <laughs> time your way. how that to be crazy. Insane. I'm telling you, I'm, I know how to do this. Okay. You know, there was an article in the Atlantic. I, I didn't read the whole article, but it said something like the handshake is gone. It's the death of the handshake. So that's I hate one the of handshake. The I hate it. I've always hated it. <laughs> oh, I, I keep a thing a hand sanitizer in my in my jacket and i put it on my hands and, and, oh my and then i have to run and wash my hands in the bathroom i oh will never shake hands with anybody on the face of this earth never now liz i run up and hug people <laughs> like that i barely know 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm a hugger too. That is disgusting. That's be... <laughs> disgusting. Hug, hugs are wonderful. <laughs> They're I'm going to start the anti-hug movement. You started the, the uh, work from home movement. Re- I'm going to do the anti-hug movement, the anti-handshake <laughs> movement, the anti-all kinds of stuff movement. So here, I remember what it was now. And, and the thing that my husband thought was going to go away, in, in his words, good riddance, was food buffets. Oh. Oh, no, 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 no. As a lifelong Las Vegas junkie. <laughs> there, are, there are exceptions to my Oh my psychosis. God, Rudy, that is I, ridiculous. It's not you ridiculous. You can't sanitize, but you're okay with a buffet. Absolutely. You don't know what, the, listen, you don't know, listen to me, you don't know what the, what the casino's put in the air. It's magic. It's magic sanitizing stuff that makes everything okay. Because <laughs> the amount of alcohol and lack of sleep and money that people spend in Vegas, they've got to put secret sauce into the buffet or into the air for people to survive. So nope, that's nope. Casinos, that 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 should be the the oh new Disneyland magical place that everything stays the way it was before. That's what I think. You know, and if you have listeners, any <laughs> any thoughts that you want to share with Rudy about this, you can tweet him at Salo Rudy. <laughs> Let him know what you think about a buffet. I think bowling what? is out the door. Oh, 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 wait, 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 hold on a second. What? Why did you bring up bowling? You know, I almost became a professional bowler. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, in high school, oh, I was. Uh, <laughs> I swear to God, all the way up until I was 15, I was ranked as one of the best bowlers in Southern California. To this day, I still drive around in my car with a bowling ball. So whenever I'm bored, I stop off at the bowling alley. Bowling will not die. Bowling, <laughs> I will. I. Hey, what don't you do? There's a whole other show. But I, don't, don't say bowling's going to die. Don't say Vegas buffets are going to go away. Okay. Because then I don't want to live. Okay, Rudy. What about public <laughs> I mean, I know there's chlorine in the water and all, but uh let's face it sometimes they aren't always cleanest you've written about work from home you've written about broadband you've written about food what next is on your plate for writing about the repercussions of COVID-19 a couple of things I'm working on a story right now about what this will mean for education funding and a lot of places as you guys sure know from teacher strikes and and all of that had either ramped up education funding in recent years with a planned on it and so states are facing huge, huge deficits and what that might mean for public schools. And then Rudy, you'll be happy to hear this one. I'm going to be do, working on a piece on the implications for public transit. So Rudy and I will be talking about that, I'm sure, over the phone at some point. Oh, we so, totally I mean, will. There's just so many threads to unravel there. <laughs> no, you're, you and I will talk a lot about that. And I, I mean, I have been writing a little bit about, I sent you a couple of my Forbes.com pieces something that I'm focusing on. You know, here's another thing, Liz, um, that you and I can talk about. What's the future of stadiums? What's the future of stadium finance? What's the future of sporting Uh, events? What's the future of sports? What's the future of sports? I mean, there's so many things that we know nothing about. The only thing I know is that there will be Vegas buffets and there will be bowling because that's going to be my (laughs) life mission. Oh my God. Well, um, you know, I was thinking... Gosh, even bringing up the transit and the education, it just it just seems like this is revealing um, whatever uh, income inequality that we had that it's just going to magnify it. Mm-hmm. Since there is so much about COVID nineteen out there, and since you are a journalist, what is a tip that you could give people when they're reading information about COVID nineteen to be able to distinguish what is what is authentic or what is good? What is, uh, by good, I mean like informative or versus misinformation. What are some 
clues or things that people can pay attention to, to know that they're getting the right, they're reading stuff from a good source? I think number one, the headlines does not tell the whole story. Headlines are meant to be sensationalist and they're meant to make you click on them, even at the loftiest news outlets. So uh, don't think that you have all the information if you've read the headline and then like the first few words of the story. And then the most, uh, the, the second most important thing I think is where is noting, where does the journalist say he or she is getting his facts? Is it from the CDC? Is it from a doctor so-and-so? Or is it from somebody said this on Twitter? I mean, do they link to their sources? If there aren't links within the document, I mean, sometimes that's an editorial decision. And sometimes that's a questionable decision because the journalist doesn't have a solid foundation for his or her facts. And so I think really, you know, checking your sources, where is a journalist getting into information? And then do you trust that source? Those are some of the, the key, key things. Mm -hmm. Many news stories about out there that are just based on a tweet, like so-and-so tweeted this. And it's not even as if the journalist is trying to present some sort of breaking news kind of thing. It's just literally a story about a tweet. That kind of stuff drives me crazy. It does not move any kind of conversation forward. It just produces more ridiculous tweets to then have more news stories about. So there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff out there that doesn't keep you informed at all. It's just people's opinions that you could avoid if you, if you would choose to. All right. What do you think, Rudy? I'm very pleased. I, okay. I, I love this topic. I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, no kidding. I love discussing the work from home pre-COVID, post, the future. I'm a science fiction junkie. I'm a science fiction writer. And we are now living within a like kind of a science fiction-y kind of an era where anything is humanly possible. If we can put in the right pieces, if we can put the, if we have a good leadership, if we have good forward thinking, I think we can make society better in a way. Maybe we can deal with some of the inequities of housing. Maybe we can deal with some of the inequities of people getting exposed when, when they shouldn't be. Some inequities in education as well. If we think about it and we're very thoughtful about our approaches, you know, we'll come out of this. It's possible we can come out of this better. I, I'm, I'm being hopeful, but yeah. you know, hope. Yeah. Well, Liz, how can people get in touch with you? I've got a website. It's farmersfieldonline.com. My Twitter handle is Liz Farmer Tweets. And uh, my email is farmersfieldonline at gmail.com. So hopefully everyone just wrote all of that down really, really quickly. I'm also on LinkedIn <laughs> and uh, fairly easy to find there. Okay, cool. Well, thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for working with me, talking with me, listening to my craziness, quoting me in your yeah. articles. I know whenever you need that crazy quote, you go, okay, Rudy's going to give me that one. So I appreciate you <laughs> being my friend. I really do. <laughs> Ditto, ditto. I appreciate you always picking up the phone. And you have crazy and intelligent things to say. Best of both worlds. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, Liz, have a good afternoon. Bye. All right, Bye. you guys too. Thanks again. Bye. And thank you so much for listening. It's a great talk with Liz and with Rudy. Though I'm not sure about the whole buffet thing. Again, you have any thoughts, questions, musings, you can email goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. I am going to put a link in the show notes to Liz's website. I am also going to link the raffle. It is a four-part book. We are going to have a whole episode in a couple of weeks devoted to book one. 
get your copy, send me an email, let me know what you think if you want to ask the author any questions. And do you want to become a patron of the show? I will have a link to that. Also, please give the show a rating and a review. That really helps the show out and it would be awesome. We have a Facebook page, like it. We're on Instagram, good is in the details pod. And you can always tweet me at gdolsky. Okay, everyone. Now, stay safe, wash your hands, and stop hoarding the toilet paper. Bye.